Hello, welcome back. Today, I'm happy to be speaking with Dr. Mark Shukant, Distinguished Professor of Psychiatry at UC San Diego School of Medicine. Dr. Shukant has done extensive research on alcohol use disorder, and today we are fortunate to have him share his knowledge with us. Thank you, Dr. Shukant, for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for asking. Let's get started. So first, how do we define alcohol use disorder, and how is it different from heavy or unhealthy drinking? I'll give you the parallel. In, in, in individuals' weight and height ratio, those are on a continuum, and they can be used to evaluate a certain level of health. If that figure goes higher than 30, it is considered morbid obesity but everything below that down to a certain level is still quite unhealthy, but not enough data to say that it has the serious complications that might be seen with morbid obesity in the uh, BMI. So in alcohol, we can start talking about first, there is no purely safe dose of alcohol but it certainly appears as if less than three standard drinks a day and pretty much on any occasion, that less than that is nowhere near the level of harmfulness of above three or more per day. So you're dealing with alcohol intake that can be relatively neutral, assuming that you don't have a medical problem that's made worse, and assuming you're not pregnant, et cetera, that you have a level of alcohol use that is unhealthy. And then, then you cross a line when the level of alcohol that you're taking has been shown in data-based research to be associated with more severe problems in the future. Just very briefly, that's the difference between drinking, heavy drinking, and an alcohol use disorder. That alcohol use disorder used to be called alcoholism. You have crossed a line where there are data that if you don't stop drinking or permanently cut back severely, you are putting yourself at terrible risk, just like morbid obesity versus being a bit overweight. A bit overweight isn't healthy, but morbid obesity, you're really headed for potential troubles. Now, a standard drink, in the jargon, it's 10 to 12 grams of ethanol. Ethanol is the active ingredient in beverage alcohol. And I'll put into a more common terminology, a standard drink or 10 to 12 grams of ethanol is the approximate amount of alcohol you get with a 12 ounce beer, with the average four ounce wine, and with a single shot of 80 proof beverage, uh, such as tequila and uh, vodka and uh, gin, whiskey, et cetera. So there is a difference between heavier drinking, not good for you, and having crossed a line where there are really good data that you are headed for serious problems, if you can, even more serious problems if you continue to drink. There is one major definition of an alcohol use disorder in the world. Uh, there is another definition that's pretty similar. Well, the major one is a definition from the American Psychiatric Association about what an alcohol use disorder is. 
And the most recent of this is the fifth version, DSM, or Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, DSM-5, and that was published in 2013. The other one that's pretty similar and they overlap comes from the World Health Organization. Those are the two database definitions of what an alcohol use disorder is. And let me paraphrase first what those diagnostic criteria are saying. This paraphrase is not a useful diagnostic system, but it is pretty much what the diagnostic systems are aiming at. If you've reached a point in life where alcohol means more than the problems it's causing, you're extremely likely to continue to escalate the problems associated with that drug, and alcohol is a drug. So in the DSM-5 definition, there are 11 items, really very similar to prior definitions of the American Psychiatric Association going back to 1988 and perhaps even as far back as 1980. And they are things like continuing to use alcohol despite repeated objections from those around you. And the objections aren't you're drinking or not. The objections are related to your behaviors or uh, when you're drinking or consequences of the drinking heavily. It's an inability to control the drinking on a regular basis. The uh, second of the criteria is that despite setting limits for yourself on how long you'll drink during an evening or on a weekend and or on how many drinks you'll take, you regularly exceed that limit. Not every time, but pretty much of the time you drink more or longer than intended. A third is to have a developed tolerance of some significant level. Tolerance is uh, your body adapts to the drug. It happens with most drugs. Your, your body adapts to the drug so that in order to get the feeling you want from the drug, as you progress over weeks or months, you require more and more of the drug to get that effect. And just a, a change in particular effect, and it's just a drink or two change, probably doesn't mean much, but the tolerance that would be a change of uh, four drinks or more. It used to be two to get an effect, and now I'll say five to six to get an effect that you're particularly uh, focusing on. That's tolerance. And then there's withdrawal. Most young people don't have alcohol withdrawal, a variety of reasons, and we can go on and talk about it later if we wish. But there are 11 items. If you have two or more of the 11 items to the point of interfering with functioning, uh, then you would meet criteria for a mild alcohol use disorder, which uh, obviously has a better prognosis than a severe alcohol use disorder. When you have four or more of those 11 symptoms occurring together at about the same time in your life, if you have four or more, it means you've got moderate to severe alcohol use disorder. And once you get into that, which in prior manuals was called dependence, once you get into that severe alcohol use disorder, you really have to stop drinking if you don't want to get into really bad trouble, both physically and psychologically in the future. So how do we define alcohol use disorder and how is it different from unhealthy drinking? That's pretty much the answer to your question. I do want to say one other thing. 
I will not share with you my opinion. That's not worth much. Everything I'm telling you or will in response to what you're talking about will be data based. Uh, it's studies that are pretty much showing that, that what I'm telling you is accurate as opposed to just my clinical opinion, which uh, hopefully has some validity to it, but not a lot compared to the data. So with that, we can go on to your next question. <laughs> um, I'm sure your clinical opinion is very valuable, but moving on, are there any factors that makes one more likely to develop an alcohol use disorder? My career has been in the genetics of alcoholism. And I started that when I was in medical school many years ago and got involved in a research project. I will now just tell you very briefly why I'm so certain that alcoholism or alcohol use disorder is genetically influenced. And then I'll tell you what that means. So the weakest information supporting genetic factors in an alcohol use disorder, the least impressive is the fact that alcohol use disorders run in families so that sons and daughters of individuals with an alcohol use disorder have at least a threefold higher risk for the disorder than sons or daughters of individuals who did not have alcohol use disorders. Now, the reason why that's the weakest is you don't know if it's something being taught in the family somehow or something related to characteristics of the family that don't have anything to do with genes. So that's why it's the weakest bit of information on genetics of alcohol use disorder. The next step is actually a study that I got involved in when I was in medical school. And it is what happens if someone who has an, a parent, biological parent, with an alcohol use disorder is separated early in life from that parent and raised in a family with no alcohol use disorder. That individual with the biological alcohol use disorder parent, even when not raised by that biological parent, still has a threefold or so increased risk for alcohol use disorders. So, the familial nature of alcoholism is at least part genetically influenced as shown by you don't have to be raised by the individual with an alcohol use disorder to demonstrate the disorder yourself. The third bit of evidence comes from uh, studies of twins. There are two types of twins, obviously. The first type called identical twins come from the same egg and the same sperm, and they are 100% identical. So they have the same genetic profile. Those are identical twins. Then you have the fraternal twins, and the fraternal twins are the different egg, different sperm happen to be born at the same time, and they are no more alike than any two full siblings. If alcoholism or alcohol use disorders were genetically influenced, then the identical twin of an alcoholic or an individual with an alcohol use disorder should have a higher risk than the fraternal twin of an individual with an alcohol use disorder. And that is exactly what happens. But among the identical twins of individuals, you've got twin A has an alcohol use disorder, and then you look at does twin B develop the disorder and they're identical. 
only about 60 or maybe at most 70% of those twins, identical twins, develop alcoholism or an alcohol use disorder, which is very good evidence that alcohol use disorders are both genes and environment. So now we jump into a next level of information. And that is that most medical, medical disorders, like most forms of cancer and uh, high blood pressure and diabetes, most medical and psychiatric conditions are what are called complex genetically influenced disorder, which don't follow classical descriptions of the effects of genes as originally proposed by Mendel uh, more than a century ago. And uh, those Mendel-type defined disorders are either dominant or recessive. Most medical and psychiatric conditions have a genetic component, but it is not dominant or recessive. And what's happening here is uh, it is that the, the developing the disorder comes from many different genes, not just one. And each of the genes has a very small effect. For some genes, it could be more than very small, but basically most of the genes that are impacting on the alcohol use disorders are probably having an effect of 1% of the risk, 1% uh, of the variance or the, uh, the material that goes into what that risk might be. And each of the genes interacts with environment. Those are complex genetically influenced disorders. So how could you possibly begin to study a complex genetically influenced disorder when it's that complicated? Genes plus environment, many different genes, most of the genes having only a relatively small effect. Well, one approach is one that, again, our group adopted some 40 years ago, which is if you can break the disorder, alcohol use disorder, if you can break the risk down into a range of characteristics that you can measure. Now, each of those characteristics explains, and I'll give you examples, explains part of the risk. And there'll be fewer genes with that slice of the risk, and there will be easier to study gene-environment relationships. Well, one of the characteristics that is genetically influenced that has an impact on the alcoholism risk was actually discovered in the 1960s. Not that people understood exactly what it was that they had in front of them, but there are alcohol metabolizing genes, genes that break down alcohol faster, slower with higher levels of breakdown products or lower levels. And those two major enzymes uh, that are controlled by genes are alcohol dehydrogenase and aldehyde dehydrogenase. And genes that impact on how the alcohol is metabolized actually cause have mutations that help protect people. And a specific example are Japanese, Chinese, and Korean individuals, 40% uh, of whom have a variation in aldehyde dehydrogenase that causes them to have a facial flush. They turn red when they drink. And that decreases their risk for alcoholism because it is a little bit aversive. That is, not everybody likes having that uh, red and hot feeling in your face. 
and and it also is a warning to somebody that they're getting intoxicated. But that is one example with a bunch of different genes that affect it, and it actually has an impact on the alcohol use disorder risk, and it's been known since 1960-something. Uh, and that risk is actually decreased. But those enzymes, while they help protect, not absolutely, but they help lower the alcoholism or alcohol use disorder risk a bit, they have no impact on any other drug problem or any psychiatric problems, just helps to protect a bit from alcohol use disorders. Another example of things that are characteristic that are genetically and environmentally influenced that have an impact on the alcohol use disorder risk is impulsivity, high levels of impulsivity. Impulsivity or impulsiveness is making decisions without thinking carefully about the potential consequences, which is often associated with making decisions that cause trouble and having trouble learning from the bad things that occurred. And everybody's impulsive to some level, but extreme impulsivity is uh, strongly genetically influenced, not caused, perhaps explaining 60% of the uh, extreme impulsiveness. And that level of impulsiveness increases your risk for alcohol use disorders and drug use disorders and gambling disorders and a whole bunch of other things. Now, I study a third characteristic, and none of these characteristics are closely related. These are three, and there are more, three separately controlled characteristics that either increase or decrease the risk for alcohol use disorders. And mine is that we started to study in the 1970s is some people are able to drink a fair amount of alcohol from very early in their drinking experiences and have relatively little effect. So when I went to high school, if I would have some beer, which of course I wasn't supposed to, but I had some beer, I would feel an effect from one beer uh, and I would feel an even stronger effect from two beers. And sitting next to me when I was in high school at a party would be somebody who's drinking a whole pitcher of beer and not feeling much at all. And that of course could be tolerance that you develop over time, but this is really early in people's drinking careers and people start from a different threshold of how much alcohol it takes to have effect. Surprisingly, perhaps then, but not now, is uh, because there's a bunch of data to support this, is the fact that those people who are pretty resistant to the effects of alcohol require a fair amount of, of uh, more alcohol than others in order to get the effects from pretty early in their drinking careers, they carry a significantly higher risk for drinking very heavily and developing alcohol-related problems because they can get very drunk. It's just higher levels of alcohol, more time spent drinking and uh, hanging out with people generally who drink an awful lot, who are there, the ones you end up hanging out with at the parties. That is another genetically influenced characteristic with genes, this low sensitivity for drink with genes that explain about 40% of a person's level of reaction or sensitivity to alcohol. Now, one of the other questions you asked leads directly from this. 
which is once we were able to identify that this low sensitivity per drink or needing a lot of alcohol to have an effect was associated with future alcohol-related problems, not totally, but, but certainly statistically significantly associated with it. And while I didn't cover that, while the uh, low sensitivity to alcohol runs in families, and once we discovered that, we got involved in some long-term studies, and that's 453 families that we've been following now for 40 years across two generations. And by looking at people in those families, some of whom had a low sensitivity to alcohol, requiring a lot of alcohol for effects, and some of whom had a pretty much a normal, usual kind of level of sensitivity to alcohol, we were able to identify some characteristics, some things in the environment, uh, and some attitudes that were having an impact on exaggerating the effect of the low response to alcohol, markedly increasing the power of that low response to alcohol, which is genetically influenced, the power of that to predict alcohol problems. It was never a certainty, but it's a matter of probabilities, that it increases the probability. And we put together a prevention trial where we took 500 entering freshmen at our university, scanned a lot of them regarding the number of drinks that they usually required for effects and identified people who required a lot more drinks for effects. There's a standardized questionnaire that we use. And we called those people, people who have a low response per drink because they required a lot of drinks across a variety of effects. And we matched them with other people who were on the other extreme and were pretty sensitive to alcohol. And we did a one-year study with seven evaluations to determine the following. If we taught the people with especially those who had this low sensitivity for drink about some of the characteristics in their lives that they can modify because they can't modify their genes, some of the characteristics in their lives that they could modify to decrease the ability of this low sensitivity to predict future alcohol problems, that could we teach them how to increase their awareness of avoiding heavy drinking friends and their awareness of the importance of not using alcohol to deal with stress and their awareness that it is not a healthy thing to assume that the only time that you can have a really good time is if you drink a lot of alcohol and to deal with stress, uh, teach them more healthy ways to dealing with stress. If we can teach them that, could we decrease over the next year the alcohol-related problems and the heavy drinking in the individuals with the low response to alcohol? And indeed, indeed we could. And that uh, study was a successful moderation, not a total obliteration, but a successful moderation or prevention in some people, a statistically significant and uh, certainly uh, life-wise uh, important uh, decrease in the probability of developing a, a huge number of problems. So genetics are important in developing alcohol use disorders, but don't predestine it because these genes are just 
part of the risk. Environment is also important. The genes operate through a whole bunch of different characteristics, and I've only named three, the one that I study, which is a low sensitivity to alcohol. Understanding those risk factors and studying in longer term studies, and we've done it across two generations of these families, understanding things in the environment or attitudes that might be able to be changed, you can have an impact on whether that predisposition is more or less likely. Thank you. Uh, so what are some of the symptoms and dangers associated with alcohol intoxication and alcohol withdrawal? Your listeners could answer that uh, as well as I can. They would be answering it from their opinions and experiences, and I would be answering it from the standpoint of the data. Just as coming back to uh, being 20 pounds overweight is not morbid obesity, but it's not healthy. And for that level of increased weight, you have a bunch of different potential consequences. For alcohol, obviously getting intoxicated decreases your judgment can make you more irritable so that, especially for boys, but it happens for, for girls as well, increase the probability of physical fights, but certainly for both sexes, increases the probability of arguments. It puts somebody vulnerable. For example, somebody drinking enough so that they don't remember what happened to them during an evening. That's called an alcohol-related blackout. It's a memory impairment to acquire new memories before that period of time of intoxication. But when you are that intoxicated, you are very vulnerable for rape or for somebody stealing something from you or for being involved in a horrid auto accident or a fall. So uh, there are uh, shy of alcohol use disorders, which shorten the lifespan by about five to 10 years is a very rough estimate from the literature, the alcohol use disorders and increase the risk of the alcohol use disorders, increase the risk for a whole gamut of severe potential life-threatening over the years, medical problems. Shy of that alcohol use disorder, when you become intoxicated, you are uh, exposing yourself to very severe potential dangers. Thank you. And finally, if we have time for one more question. Sure uh, do. Go ahead. Thanks. Uh, what are some treatment options that are available for patients who have an alcohol addiction? Okay, super. A uh, little bit of background. Alcohol use disorders could be described as chronic conditions that fluctuate in intensity with time. They get better, they get worse, you have control for, for uh, a few days or a few months, and then you develop of your drinking and then your drinking goes off the charts again regarding your inability to control it. And chronic relapsing disorders are treated, that the core of treatment is helping people to first get optimized regarding their motivation to change. And there's something called motivational interviewing that your listeners can Google. 
and what motivational interviewing is, what family members can do, and what clinicians of any kind of type of background can do, which is helping somebody to clearly think about their options, the pros and cons of their options, and to begin to make changes to decide and hopefully actually begin to make some changes to avoid more severe problems in the future. That's motivational interviewing. Gets people's attention if they're ready and helps them to begin the process of the changes that are needed in order to, despite their predisposition, well, environmentally or genetically and environmentally or whatever, despite their predisposition, helps them to um, modify their drinking and uh, and hopefully stop if their drink is in the severe range. Okay, uh, that's the first step for treating high blood pressure and treating people who might have blood in their urine and ignore it, or uh, treating people who might be having chest pains. It could be indicating something wrong with the heart or their lungs and ignore it. The first step is to get them motivated to consider taking steps and to help them transition into those steps. The next step is to help people to change how they think about their condition, such as nobody really suffers as badly from this condition as you do, so you're the one who's really got to make the decisions, and helping them to realize that there are changes that can be made that will help them achieve abstinence, or if it's much less severe condition, uh, modify their drinking. And that is cognitive or thinking changes. And then as part of this approach, the second step, which has a cognitive component, is also a behavioral component. But teaching them things such as don't try to match your heaviest drinking friends in how much you're going to consume. Don't go to bars. Don't drink. Uh, if, you, if you're deciding you're absolutely not going to stop drinking, don't drink the more concentrated beverages, uh, such as whiskey, and do set a number of drinks and keep to it. And much better if you stop drinking. And then there are also people, there are groups that can help you recover. Those are motivational interviewing and cognitive behavioral approaches. That is in common for all long-term disorders, not just alcohol or drug use disorders. Now, for alcohol use disorders, there are two medications that help a bit. One of the medications that slightly but statistically significantly improves the chances of being able to stop and stay stopped or to significantly modify your intake, uh, one of those medications is a drug called naltrexone, N-A-L-T-R-E-X-O-N-E usually prescribed about 50 milligrams per day. And it is not unbelievably effective. It really is best used in the context of motivational interviewing and cognitive behavioral talk therapy. Uh, but naltrexone seems to blunt the uh, level of enjoyment from drinking. doesn't make you sick or anything. Blunts any kind of glow that might be occurring, especially at the rising blood alcohol levels. It doesn't blunt it completely, it blunts it a little bit. That's naltrexone. The second medication that adds a little bit 
to the potential of people doing well in, uh, especially in abstinence-oriented, but but at least uh, modifying their behaviors if they refuse to to become abstinent, is a drug called Campral, C-A-M-P-R-A-L. The generic name for that drug is a camprosate, but Campral is really all you need to know. And Campral probably decreases your risk for going back to drinking by diminishing some of the lingering feelings of anxiousness and discomfort that can go on for multiple weeks after the time you stop drinking. But either of those medications without some form of group talk therapy or perhaps group support by self-help groups such as Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, that any of either of those drugs used alone is likely to have a minimal impact without being also associated with these cognitive behavioral talk therapies. I can tell you this, most of the individuals with alcohol use disorders who I have treated over the years have jobs, have families, they are highly productive to people. Many people around them don't realize the level of alcohol problems that they're having. And among those individuals who've got a lot going for them and a lot to lose from their alcohol use disorder, with those individuals, once they get into actually saying, I'm now going to make a strong effort uh, through cognitive behavioral or other forms of general support, they probably have a 60-ish percent chance that they're going to successfully change their lives regarding alcohol. The people who have less going for them in life that don't have steady jobs and never did at the other relative extreme end of the spectrum, they have a bit more trouble uh, with many different types of treatments for many different disorders, but they do well too. So whether you are somebody with a high education and not what is a viewed as a typical alcohol use disorder individual, but I think is the usual, or if you're somebody with more troubles in life and not as comfortable in uh, your social support system, you still have a very good chance of doing well if you can commit yourself to these kinds of treatments. Uh, and commit in this it just means I'm, I'm going to try and I'm going to work hard at it. And yeah, uh, uh, this was very informative, Dr. Shuket, and thank you again for taking the time to share your expertise. Sure, and uh, congratulations to you for taking this job on to do a blog or any kind of general education program on addictions is really needed. Uh, they're very common disorders. The lifetime risk for alcohol use disorders in men is probably 20-ish percent and might be higher. In women, it's a bit lower, but somewhere between 10 and 15 percent. That's a lot of people having a lot of troubles in their lives that they don't have to live with, that indeed can be modified. And the fact that you're out there educating people is to be congratulated. I really appreciate that, Dr. Shuket. And it's so great that you've been able to find ways to decrease the risk of alcohol addiction in individuals who, who are genetically inclined to developing this disorder. I hope we can talk to you again to hear more about your work. Until next time.